0: At Hello, friends. I'm Ray Johnston, and welcome to your monthly Indigenous STEM special for Take It Black, where you can stay up to date with all the latest happenings in science, technology, engineering and maths. It's also a place where we look at the intersection of traditional knowledge and modern science and speak to people working in this space to find out what they're up to. First, here's some tech news.
1: Take It Black.
0: Whether it's a former flame, a cousin or a colleague, just about everyone has a personal connection they'd rather not run into when dipping their toe into the dating pool. In fact, a recent survey commissioned by Tinder found that more than 40% of respondents have come across an ex-partner on a dating app, and another 24% have seen a family member or colleague... That's pretty awkward. And given the chance, 78% of those surveyed would prefer not to see or be seen by these connections on an app. So with this in mind, Tinder is rolling out a new feature that lets you block personal contacts in the app. Members everywhere will be able to access a block contacts within your profile settings. From there, you can input which of your contacts you'd rather not see or be seen by on Tinder. Whether those contacts are already on Tinder or decide to download it later using the same contact info, they won't appear as a potential match. Fun fact, Tinder is the highest grossing non-gaming app globally. It's been downloaded more than 430 million times. Twitter has launched a subscription version. It says will provide access to exclusive features and perks that will take our experience on Twitter to the next level. And for those wondering, no, a free Twitter is not going away and apparently never will. This subscription offering is simply meant to add enhanced and complementary features to the already existing Twitter experience for those who want it. It's called Twitter Blue and was launched first in Australia and Canada – And those who sign up will get bookmark folders to let you organise the tweets you've saved. It will let you use an undo tweet feature that sets a customisable timer of up to 30 seconds in which you can click undo before your tweet or reply or thread you've sent posts to your timeline. So you can look at it and correct any mistakes easily by previewing what your tweet will look like before the world can see it. Also, you'll get a reader mode that makes it easy for you to keep up with long threads on Twitter by turning them into easy-to-read text. Subscribers will get access to perks like customizable app icons for your device's home screen, colour themes for your Twitter app, and access to dedicated subscription customer support. As a Twitter Blue subscriber, you will get these features and perks for the monthly price of $4.49. Always, well, always Take
1: it black.
0: Australian health expert Edwina Griffin has teamed up with Gomoroi man Kevin Duncan on a world-first meditation app at one. Unlike other meditation apps, At One is the first personalised immersive virtual reality guided meditation app that has a multi-sensory approach to meditation where you can customise each experience. I spoke with Edwina about the app and started by asking why meditation is important.
1: Uh, Well, meditation... I guess, has so many benefits in terms, I think particularly with COVID and all the extra stress we've had. um, You know, one of the primary sort of benefits of meditation is around addressing stress. So it's been shown to reduce the effects of stress being, you know, reducing cortisol level, which is the the byproduct of stress and reducing blood pressure and reducing heart rate. It also improves focus. And also with all of the research around neuroplasticity, so the benefits of training the mind towards more positive thinking, so that, that reinforced repetitive thought process of, of something positive or gratitude. And there's you know, different types of meditations you can do, so then that brings in all of the research with from people like Martin Seligman around gratitude and the benefits of gratitude, and you can gratitude meditations or you can do you know loving kindness or empathy or there's so many different areas of focus in meditation so i think that's what's exciting is that you can apply it in many different ways and we know meditation's been used for thousands of years you know with various religions uh, and researchers kind of caught up with that now which is the great part we've now got science to prove it
0: And we have seen a lot of meditation apps come out in the last few years. Using a meditation app has become really common for a lot of people. At One isn't exactly your regular meditation app, though, is it?
1: No, it's not. I'm happy to say, you know, it's kind of, it's a first in Australia. At the time when I started, it was first in the world. There's a few similar now worldwide, uh, but we're certainly the first in the world now that that measure it also measures your heart rate it gives reporting on heart rate for individuals and groups and it's the most most important difference I guess from the current apps is it's not just the phone app it's virtual reality so we're bringing in the visual and we've got sense so smell and we've got the auditory so we've got music and and the visualization so it's a real multi-sensory approach taking advantage of, of technology to to kind of give us a
0: mental health benefit you mentioned smell there how does that work
1: well, smell—it's using essential oils. So, serena scent is one of the uh, smell-smelling sort of products that we're using. That was developed by Sydney Uni and Queensland Uni, which has been shown with research to reduce cortisol levels. So, again, to address those symptoms of stress, and essential oils, which is, um, is another type of scent that we use with the, with our experience, that has also been shown to reduce. The symptoms of stress so it's just providing you know the, the other research that is around scent which we're aware of is that it um, is, it connects sort of to memory so you, you tend to if you use a scent a certain scent in say your meditation all the time you can then this is particularly popular with some of the sporting teams we've met with you can then use that on the field you then smell the smell and the brain associates it with that experience which is a relaxing experience so we can use that trigger That brain trigger in the the brain with with smell to take you into that relaxed state that's associated with that smell.
0: Sounds wonderful. And heading back to what you said there about using virtual reality as well, why did you choose to go down the path of using virtual reality in a meditation app?
1: Um, It was actually from my own experience. I collapsed from um, workplace stress in an environment that wasn't great. <laughs> and I'd always meditated and I found when I was really at that level of stress, which I'd probably never experienced before, that just the audio didn't work for me. I couldn't stop that monkey mind. I couldn't stop the looping and the negative thoughts. And so at that time I started um, trying to help myself with smell and I was using at that time LED lights it was prior to virtual reality being affordable. And I've been you know researching this space for probably six years. I'm waiting for virtual reality to become affordable. But what I found with doing the LED lights and having my visual address as well as smell, as well as audio, was that I could actually get into a relaxed space. Um, and so it was from my personal experience, as well as the fact that I've been teaching meditation and I found a lot of people were having trouble getting into a deep state. And I knew that going, you know, having this multi-sensory approach helps people to get into a deeper state faster
0: and music is a big part of the experience you've created who have you been working with to make all the sounds
1: yeah i've been lucky to have some great friends who are amazing musicians and um kevin Duncan, or Gabby, um is has provided all the didgeridoo or y- yidaki tracks uh, which are beautiful and yantra devilda who's also a brilliant musician and and joshua tree and there's about and deb as well who does the dragon gongs so it's um a lot of the music has been with gavi and yantra though the the majority of the music
0: wonderful and you've got plant music in this can you explain how this plant music works
1: yeah absolutely that's joshua tree works with the plants where there's technology now that picks up on the, the frequency of the sound of the plants and so that's been um it's quite amazing actually i was surprised when i first heard it that the frequency of sound that's converted through plants is it sounds like a choir you know it's um it's quite beautiful and i'll have to actually share you a couple of those tracks because i was actually shocked and a few times i've just played it without people knowing what it was and said "Oh, you know what do you think of the music and they're like that choir is beautiful i'm like well actually that's a geranium plant
0: what that's amazing (laughs) Yeah. yeah
1: so it's pretty amazing um so it's really just interesting as we know everything, you know, everything's frequencies and vibrations, and now we've got the tech to actually pick up on what's, you know, and it, to me it also brings people's awareness of everything that's around us, you know, when you're feeling down and we, we think we're by ourselves and you connect with nature, you connect with the land, you connect with the music and all these great things that we have that we can utilize to help ourselves.
0: What would you really love people to know about At One.
1: Look, I think what I'd like you to know is that it's an experience in itself, um, that it's really about stepping into the experience. So it's not about you have to learn how to meditate. Just doing it, you'll feel the experience. And it's very much the approach is that. And and probably the other important part from my point of view is that it's all Australian. So it's all Australian content. It's all Australian contributors. And um, I think that's unique. There's a lot of other apps from all around the world, but it's kind of nice to have an Aussie product. Um, with all Aussie musicians and
0: vocations. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me, Edwina, and and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
1: Take a black.
0: Kerbal Space Program is a video game that has earned a reputation for being both scientifically accurate and challenging over the years. KSP, as it is affectionately known, allows players to build spaceships, rockets and vehicles using any imaginable combination of parts to transport little alien creatures called kerbals. For the sequel, Kerbal Space Program 2, these concepts will still very much remain true, but one of the developer Intercept Games's top priorities is making sure Kerbal Space Program 2 is a much more welcoming place for new players, with a number of enhancements for onboarding and approachability. I spoke with the co-lead engineer on KSP to find out more.
2: Hi, I'm David Trigonning. I'm a co-lead engineer on Kerbal Space Program.
0: David, thank you so much for joining us. Now, I, I hear that KSP, as it is affectionately known, is the perfect project for you because it's combined two of your great loves, gaming and space. How and when did the idea for this game first come about?
2: It's actually a pretty interesting historical story. Actually, so KSP this year um, hit 10 years of age, which is a an unusual event in the life of a single computer game. Uh, yeah. For a, a franchise or something, it might be might be something that happens, but for one game, it, it's it's the uh, it's outside the norm. So, so KSP itself started 10 10 years ago. Like I said, um, by a guy by the name of Felipe Falange, um, who lives and works in Mexico he was working for um, a media company in Mexico and wanted to do something differently. Um, and he pitched it to his bosses who decided it was worth having having a bit of an exploration on those kind of, uh, something different to their, their day career because there's a lot of media companies in Mexico. And um, it took off like a, like a rocket, ironically, um, <laughs> in that it, it, hit a, it hit something that people were interested in. So 10 years ago, the only real space simulation game Uh, in a way was one called orbiter which was very technical very programming a space shuttle to do stuff Um, and ksp gave a a different twist on it so there's there's a sort of a solar system that you can explore it uses physics that are realistic it uses things like orbital mechanics um, but it also has these little green kerbals who are sort of lovable and adorable that you get attached to and they give a bit of fun to it and they give a bit of a difference uh, to it uh, myself, I've been working on KSP for eight years now um, in a few different roles. And currently, I, I help lead the engineering team to, to deliver new versions.
0: Fantastic. And who would you say KSP is for?
2: I want to say it's for everyone, but I'm a very nerdy person. <laughs> Same. Um, the, the, the people who get, get really uh, into it is probably twofold. So one is um, people who are very interested in space. Um, who are very interested in recreating those, those moments or those historical missions that are happening all the time now. Um, space probably had a bit of a lull. Space exploration had a bit of a lull almost five or six years ago, and there's a lot more going on now with private industry. Um, and it's, it's people who sort of want to get a taste of that or want to get a look at it. And the idea of exploration and space exploration is something that's very popular in the news, and people find this a way to, to have a, a touch on that themselves in a way.
0: Now, obviously, the reception to KSP has been very positive to be able to still be going after 10 years. But what what are your players like and what do they say about the game? Um, Most of
2: them are are very – I'm trying to think of the right word. Um, I want to say enthusiastic, but that's not the right word. No, passionate. Most of them are very passionate. Um, And they're passionate about space and KSP and being able to to do those kind of things. So – um, the forum that we have contains a lot of people of various levels of knowledge around um, sort of space, exploration, physics, rocketry, those kind of things. Um, and they're, they're very helpful and, and sort of, I got into this game because I'm interested in space, I'm interested in maths, and this is a way for me to sort of play around with how that works with, while living in Australia and not being able to necessarily join NASA and do stuff. <laughs> um, and I could I could learn things by interacting with these people who have so much passion Um, around this topic. One of the great things that I always enjoy about working on KSP and being part of its community is that there's people who who work at NASA who play KSP. There's people who work for the ESA who play KSP. And they're they're on the forum and they they make comments. They may not tell you who they are, this is public relations and things like that, but, um, yeah, there's plenty of people. Um, And there was a a video that the Private Division team released just recently called The Kerbal Effect, um, which sort of highlights a few people in the space industry who have grown up with KSC and they've used it to learn various topics and, and they've used it to keep that interest going.
0: That's incredible. And, you know, especially for a game where the scientific accuracy is one of the selling points, I can imagine in that having players and community members like that would hold you accountable to that claim.
2: Oh, most most definitely, yeah. I mean, if, if you consider... So the, the game itself is... Is maybe a game of two parts. So, one is that sort of space exploration and um, what's called celestial mechanics, so how the, the planets move around the sun and how uh, vessels orbit a planet, those kind of things. Um, and the other half is probably more a sort of very physics, sandboxy type um, game where you can make a weird creation that has robotics parts and you can see how they move and how how uh, fuel may be converted into sort of energy and those sort of things. So, one of the One of my great passions uh, in that subject is that whole celestial mechanics stuff. So I've spent far too many hours reading old NASA papers or um, university-level books to understand things like um, how gravity uh, works and how how we can make an accurate simulation of that in KSP. to, to give a little bit of nerd to that sort of uh, space thing. The, <laughs> the way gravity works is that every body that has mass attracts every other body that has mass. But to, to model that effectively, you need massive computing power. Nobody can do that on their desktop. So in, in KSP, we use a model called patched conics. And what it does is it, it makes assumptions based on the strength of gravity to give you a relatively accurate model. It's it's the same model, that you'll see anywhere with people planning space flights and doing that kind of stuff and then they'll add an extra layer on top. But what we get in KSP is something that is really quite accurate and really quite special in a way so that you can see exactly what would happen. Um, And when you're playing the game, you need to learn that to get from position A. To get from A to B, you don't point yourself at B and go there. You have to plan for where B will be. So to get to to the MUN in KSP, you have to aim to be where the MUN will be at the right time. Um, and that's a key factor for space travel and things like missions to Mars and stuff like that.
0: Do you ever find yourself wishing that you didn't have to adhere to the rules of reality so that the possibilities within the game could be expanded? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it,
2: it, it would be interesting. It would be good. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there are some things where reality is suspended. I mean, the little Kerbal characters, are they're, they're, they're seriously one of the most favourite parts of the, of the game for me in that they sort of give you this, place to be but they they can um <laughs> lovingly they can be spaghettified, which is where <laughs> things break down and their arms and legs start to spin out of control and things like that if you apply far too much force to them so um, yes in a way but it sort of takes away a bit from it if it's not not sort of that physics sandbox that we can sort of correlate to the real world yeah.
0: Now with the sequel, how are you making sure that newcomers to Kf's pay- hey, start that question again? With the sequel, how are you making sure newcomers to KSP are having an easy time getting into the game?
2: Yeah, so the, the sequel is being developed by a second studio. So I work for Squad, who are the developers of KSP 1, and Intercept Games is building the, the sequel. Um, but as a franchise, we work together. So there's commonality, there's constant discussion, um, there's people pivoting between projects, that kind of stuff. Um, one of the, the greatest... Um, shortfalls, if you like, in KSP is that it doesn't have the best tutorial system. Um, it does use a model, and a, this is a key to KSP and its success. I think it uses the model of you learn by failure. So, just building a rocket and pointing it at something and not getting there, you learn that it doesn't work, and you have to figure out how to get it. There. Um, but there is a, a steep learning curve to go from building a rocket and understanding the mechan- mechanics of it to getting to a planet. So. Um, In KSP2, there's a a very big focus on um, some tutorialing and some storytelling to help you get a better grasp of um, what is gravity? How do I look at things like thrust to weight ratio? How do I understand the specific impulse of an engine to know what that means when I'm building a rocket to try and get um, to orbit, to get to the moon, to get to another planet? Um, And KSP2 also has some future technologies that, that are either on the cusp of reality um, or even further down down the road. And so in that space, um, there's some sort of, some of that maybe disbelief that you are sort of looking for there of cheating to get to other planets or things <laughs> like that.
0: So when is KSP2 out? Where can people find it? So its its
2: release date is about a year from now, I believe. Um, I'm not 100%. I've been head down in KSP1's KSP 10th anniversary, <laughs> which was only last week. Um, but, yeah, about a year from now is the current real estate.
0: Beautiful. And in the meantime, if people want to get into KSP, what's the best way for them to do that? How can they get involved in the community and, and find out about the game and get playing?
2: Yeah, so the the website for KSP is is Um you can buy the game there, but it's also available on Steam and GOG and a few other places. And from that website, Kerbalspaceprogram.com, there's a link to the community section, which is a sort of forum. Um, there's also a very big Reddit community with over a million uh, subscribers, I think, as well.
0: Wow, um, fantastic. And you'll
2: find, you find people discussing uh, serious type science stuff and people discussing how to build ginormous robots that kill things. Um <laughs> And you'll also find people trying to turn fireworks launches into space vehicles, which was something that uh, came out of the 10th anniversary, (laughs) because the the fireworks have the realistic physics of creating force. So how many fireworks do I need to get to space has become a challenge.
0: Amazing. And do you have any hot tips before I let you go for any new players, any fun things that they should definitely try and not overlook?
2: Um, I think it sort of depends on the, the type of game you want to play. But for, for me as a space nerd, the the one thing, one thing, two things, I'll say two things. There, there's two things that really, uh, really excited me playing KSP. Um, one was understanding that sort of how to get to another planet, but it's not point and point and click and away you go. Um, and the second one was landing on the Mun. So the Mun is the equivalent of our moon in that it orbits, uh, orbits the home body. Um, and the... The, the joy that you feel going through that sort of fail and retry process and getting a little bit further each time to land a spacecraft on another planet using um, what is invariably real physics and real knowledge and, and real learning. is um, It's an amazing feeling, and it's one that I still remember today, even though it's eight years ago for me, and it's one of the most common sort of um, achievements that people bring up on the forum and bring up on Reddit, it's it's something surreal to think you can understand the same kind of physics and the same kind of behaviours and that that some astronauts do.
0: Amazing. David, thank you so much for spending time chatting with me about KSP today. I, I genuinely cannot believe that I haven't gotten my hands on this game yet. So I'm really enjoying hearing about it and I'm looking forward to firing it up myself this weekend. Thank you for your insights and good luck with the sequel.
2: Thanks, Right, Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Facebook is partnering with Trading Black, a collective of First Nations businesses, to launch the Trading Black Facebook and Instagram shop. This is part of Facebook's commitment to support diverse small business communities and elevate opportunities for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander businesses to celebrate our culture and embrace our economic potential. Trading Black was founded in 2020 by 11 black owned businesses and aims to support up and coming black small businesses and upskill consumers to better understand the cultural considerations when buying products from First Nations businesses. The collective has a shop, a physical shop in Wurrunga Mall featuring products from over 50 First Nations-owned businesses and the new Trading Black Facebook and Instagram shop will make products from these businesses available to people around Australia and the world. I spoke with the founder of Trading Black to talk about the initiative.
3: My name is Jaron Bajan. I am a Wiradjuri woman. My family are from a Randy Mission, also known as 32 Acres. Look, look, shout out to everyone back home. Yeah. Um, but I was born and raised in Sydney. So, um, you know, I'm an in Ingram. Um, been in Sydney my whole life and I now live on Gamma Gul Country.
0: Beautiful. And tell me a little bit about Trading Black. When, when did it start up? What does it do?
3: So, Trading Black started um, sort of early last year, just prior to the COVID pandemic hitting. Um, And what it is, it's a collective of Aboriginal-owned businesses. We all came together just very like-minded on seeing what we saw as, you know, a problematic sector where there was a real over-representation of non-Aboriginal-owned businesses trading in culture. But a huge lack of transparency. So we decided to come together to really highlight, talk about the differences um, in Aboriginal-owned versus non-Aboriginal-owned, but also really to highlight the excellence of black-owned businesses and put Aboriginal-owned and First Nations-owned businesses in that forefront.
0: And you've mostly been using you know, social media to get these messages across. That's, I know I've been following the accounts for for quite a while and it's, it's proven to be a really good space to be able to be introduced to businesses that you do know are black-owned. What's the response been like?
3: Yeah, so social media has been really key um, in giving us the ability to have a voice in this space. Um, you know a lot of those non-aboriginal owned businesses that are trading in culture that I mentioned before, they have access to such huge resources that our mob just don't have. We certainly, you know the trading black founding members, none of us had that kind of resources or reach. So social media was um, a way for us to be able to get our voice out there, and it it really leveled the playing field for us. So you know rather than people speaking on this individually, we came together as a collective voice, which always is much stronger. And also um, it minimised and reduced the ability to silence our voice. So that's why Trading Black became so important around raising, you know, the awareness of um, the differences between these business models.
0: I know that a lot of black businesses got a lot of attention around the Black Lives Matter movement time last year. Has that continued? Has it kind of... You've know, stepped back a little bit.
3: Oh, I think you know. If we look across the board, we've seen people from you know acting in really trying to be proactive around being allies and understanding all the way through to performative action. We've all we've all seen that online and in real life. So I think it's a you know there's a scope and a gradient of where people sit on that um, in terms of that action. Um, certainly, it did um, you know we were able to speak to those things around that movement. But for us, the real key factor... And, and this is for every Aboriginal-owned business too, you know. Like, yes, we're businesses, but those those things that are happening in our communities, that affects all of us. And so um, we take that responsibility of speaking to those issues when we can and when it's appropriate and, you know, um, the right, I guess... Um, support not knowing when to not take up space but when to speak to these issues we take that responsibility very seriously and so that movement um yes you know we we did speak to that quite a bit and used our platform to talk about things like black death in custody which continues to be issue right here right now to this very day
0: so tell me about the partnership with facebook how does that work
3: so Facebook um, and Trading Black came together, really, it was about that connection piece. So, you know, individually, we had a really broad range of amazing, high quality, super competitive, aboriginal owned businesses with amazing qual- uh, products um, and bringing some real, you know, spectacular merch and pieces and messaging and all of those things to um, the, the market, I guess, or the marketplace. We just didn't have a place to get it out there known in the mainstream and Facebook, I think, identified that and we came together to really sort of elevate um, those businesses and put them in the forefront. You know, I spoke earlier about those non-Aboriginal businesses and their access to resource. You know, Facebook identified that Um, and this was a connection piece where we could put Aboriginal-owned businesses in the forefront in the Aboriginal marketplace.
0: Perfect. And part of this collaboration, there's going to be some, some stickers, right? Some Instagram stickers?
3: Yeah. So the, the partnership, basically, we built Facebook and Instagram shops. So what it is, is a place for the broader community, mainstream, everybody to be able to access all those deadly First Nations-owned businesses in the one spot on those Instagram and Facebook shops. Um, so, you know, you just go to the Trading Black on profiles either on Instagram or Facebook, hit shops and you'll see all the products come up. And I will say as well, you know, we're about to open membership so we can bring as many of those businesses on as possible as well. Um, and it's, it's basically you just order online shopping like you would anything else. Um, we also developed a really cool sticker pack. So they were developed by Jess Johnson, who is a Deadly Trading Black founding member and also owner of Nangala Creative. She puts together these awesome stickers where if you search, you know, when you do a story, if you search in the um, search bar, if you put Trading Black in there, you'll see a series, a series of stickers pop up. So, you know, whenever you, you post something around and average not own business or anything to do with um, where at Black Wednesday, which is also another campaign that we're running, um, you can chuck on those mad stickers and, um, you know, make your stories look really cool.
0: Now we're at Black Wednesday. That's been going for a while now, and it's a. I think it's a really good way for everyone to be able to, you know, show which businesses they've been supporting and introduce their followers to new businesses or existing businesses. How how have you seen that hashtag grow over the? Gee, it's been years now, hasn't it?
3: Yeah, it's been a while. It was a real play on, you know, the um, old school movie Mean Girls where, where on Wednesdays they wear pink, well on yeah. Wednesdays we wear black. And I think it was really cool too because, you know, Wednesday being a hump day, it gives you something to look forward to, to putting an outfit together <laughs> or, you know, what are you going to do for wear a black Wednesday? Um, but yeah, we saw some really cool support behind that. Um, with that campaign, we're now um, urging businesses and workplaces um, to partner with us on that campaign so that we can incorporate Wear It Black Wednesday in the workplace. We want to see, you know, schools and um, workplaces, companies wearing Aboriginal-owned brands and that is the key messaging around Wear It Black Wednesday as well, is that it's it's bought from Aboriginal owned businesses, not Aboriginal appearing businesses. We really want Wear It Black Wednesday and and that campaign to highlight those, those businesses but how cool would it be to see everybody roll up on Wednesday everywhere wearing their favourite black owned brand that's, that's kind of the push um, and we're really proud of it it's a cool campaign.
0: Oh, that'd be really great well if anyone wants to get involved in trading black or support aboriginal businesses you know what, what message would you give them?
3: Um, firstly you know when you're supporting or wanting to buy from aboriginal owned businesses always feel empowered to ask the questions, is your business Aboriginal-owned? It's not a disrespectful question to ask. It's something that us at Trading Black really encourage. And if in doubt, buy from the Trading Black Instagram and Facebook shops. We have done the work for you. When you buy from our platform, you know that you're buying from Aboriginal-owned businesses. Um, And also, you know, just encourage everyone to get behind the Wear It Black Wednesday campaign.
0: Great. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Appreciate it. My pleasure.
4: Thanks,
1: Ray. Always well, Always will be. Take it black.
0: And in keeping with the business theme, next up is my special guest for this episode, Dean Foley. Dean has been instrumental in bringing First Nations Coda dojo events to this continent, as well as hosting hackathons and game jams. But that's not all. Dean Foley. Camille man from Gunnedah, rural New South
4: Wales and currently based in Gundar too, moved, uh, transitioned um, from Melbourne back to the bush, you know, when COVID started getting a bit crazy yep. uh, last year and um, you know, just camped out here and taking everything online at Barragamal and um, everything we do to support Indigenous entrepreneurship.
0: Tell me, have you always been a bit of a geek? What you're doing is pretty geeky.
4: <laughs> um, I guess you know, during school, I was a bit shy and um, and that kind of stuff, and but and I did take I mean, i um, at school in high school in year eleven, twelve. you know, in 2006 or whatever it was, um, ages ago, so. You know, always been interested in computers, um, but yeah, I wouldn't personally call myself a geek. I, you know, hopefully, I'm a little bit cooler than that.
0: <laughs> I take it as a term of endearment. I think it's a, a badge of honour, but everyone feels a little bit differently about it. I think.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of friends that love being called geek, and they even have it in their LinkedIn profiles and all that kind of stuff. But. Um, yeah, I would personally, I would go around and call myself a geek.
0: No worries. So, tell me about your work. Yeah, what what are you doing right now?
4: Um, yeah, well, I guess what are we doing? There's a lot of lot of stuff we're working on, um, but basically, we're trying to you know create a better world through First Nations entrepreneurship. So, we're running programs and events. Um, to support Indigenous entrepreneurs and also um, get more support for Indigenous entrepreneurship, which is, differs to, you know, traditional Western entrepreneurship approach where it's about the individual and shareholders, um, you know, just getting benefits and making money. It's more of a, you know, Indigenous approach or perspective to things where it's, you know, developing sustainable businesses at a community-focused and give back to community.
0: And who are you working with to make this happen? Do you, do you have a team of people working with you? Or are you doing it on your own?
4: Well, um, yeah. Well, since being based in Gundah and uh, and taking things, everything online now and, and trying to scale through tech, we're trying to expand on our volunteer model because Barry almost is a charity, so we've got like half a dozen volunteers helping out um, here and there where they can, which is really good and very helpful um, for our cause. And yeah, so this year we're trying to expand on that that volunteer model to to get more help and um, help develop the things that we're working on a lot quicker. Um, and just you know, a few of us helping and progressing things here and there. So yeah, so fortunately, you know, for me. It's, um yeah got support there to help out uh when needed um but very very lean uh personnel and very lean uh budget um so yeah just focusing on online delivery to just go and make a big impact
0: and you've been doing this for a few years now how how has it changed in that time Mm, yeah time flies um
4: How has it changed? Yeah, interesting question. Uh, I feel, I mean, some things haven't changed in in some sense. I I feel, um, you know, obviously it's a lot of funding and that kind of stuff still goes to non-Indigenous organisations and it's kind of controlled, I guess, by the the Western framework and institutions, um, control and influence things. but I feel, I guess, you know, more more people are trying to support um, Indigenous perspectives, whether that's in education and also on the entrepreneurship side. I think more people start to realise that you know Indigenous and um you know, traditional Western uh, style of things or culture are different, and obviously you know people would be running their businesses differently based on that, just like Eastern versus know western um, run businesses operate differently so there's starting to be more support for indigenous entrepreneurship um, and supporting the, the grassroots uh, first nations people to to run or we'll start run and and grow their businesses which is really exciting and we've actually got a, a random well i wouldn't say random a survey at the moment um, through Google surveys. We're running, running ourselves around you know, what people think about Indigenous entrepreneurship and, and do they support it. And the results so far with about 50 respondents so far we aimed to get a couple hundred before posting information, more information about it. But um, so far, you know, majority of uh, the participants and Australians have taken the t- uh, survey still that Indigenous entrepreneurship is important. Um, around about 57% feel that way. And um, personally, you know, they don't support it by buying, you know, purchase, purchasing products or donations, so there might be an opportunity there you know, to get more more support um, from Australians and the rest of the world for Indigenous entrepreneurship. few um, people majority... Um the government and uh public the public sector corporations should be doing a lot more to support indigenous entrepreneurship, which I guess goes back to what I said at the start. I feel you know some things haven't really changed in some sense, unfortunately. Um and another interesting question was around, you know, what would Australia look like if you know, large corporations were run by Indigenous entrepreneurs, and 56% of people who have taken the the Google survey so far have said, you know, Australia would be better off um, if Indigenous people were, I guess, running the the corporate world. So, yeah, I guess, yeah, what's changed? um, Greater support, I guess, for Indigenous entrepreneurship. A lot of people start to realise maybe that the traditional a hardcore, you know, capitalist approach might be sustainable and you know, looking at new ways of doing things and and maybe, you know, indigenous entrepreneurship way of doing things is a good way to, to support and help create a better world.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now I'm I'm curious, what were you doing before you started up this organization?
4: Um I mean, what was it? Yeah, uh depends, I guess, how far you want to go back. So, <laughs> I you know, grew up in the community in Gundah, um 10% Aboriginal population here. So I grew up within the Aboriginal community here, um, you know, involved you know, with mob and our family on the land council. So you know, go to all those events and participate and get involved where I could. Somehow um, finished year 12, um, which I wasn't planning to do. But after that, um, I was looking at my options and decided to join uh, the Defence Force um, as an imagery analyst in the um, in the Air Force. So I moved to uh, Canberra, which is basically where, where I was for five years, and, and worked there in the Defence Force. And then a friend dropped a book on my desk, um, which is about entrepreneurship and, you know, coming you know, from community and low socioeconomic background like a lot of us are, you know, I didn't really know what was possible. I guess the definition of success at that time was, you know, being able to pay the bills and having a roof over your head. So reading that book um, was a light bulb moment for me to see what was possible in business and, and entrepreneurship and, you know, hopefully... Become successful in there and, and be in a position to get back and and help community where I could. So I left the air force and on a on a mission to uh, learn about running and growing businesses and um, moved up to Brisbane and and started off there and and um, yeah, so I was just working part time in like retail and paying the bills and. And also started studying at university, a postgraduate degree, like MBA and a master of business. Um, And during that time, yeah, learned about entrepreneurship and got invited to Australia's Health Startup Weekend, which was run by iLab, which was the innovation um, accelerator of uh, University of Queensland, which I thought was pretty cool. And thought, you know, why not run an Indigenous Startup Weekend? So with no experience, um, a <laughs> couple, couple, couple months later, I got a few people together, uh, got some money to put together the the world's first Indigenous um, Startup Weekend, which was interesting. And from my experience from leaving the Air Force, and also talking to to other mob during that time, I knew they needed to be more done. And um, because I was starting to get involved with the startup community. Um, around Brisbane. Uh, like I heard of accelerator programs before and I started re- reaching out to accelerator programs across Australia and, and one of them got back to me. Um, Slingshot, which was a um, business support accelerator program for Q1 corporates like HCF, Qantas, um, Lion, which is a massive retail uh, line. and. And they got back and offered to help from a CSR point of view, which was really cool. So, with their help um, and uh, uh, resources and tools around you now how to run an accelerator program, yeah, ended up running the world's indigenous, first Indigenous Accelerator in 2016, and and just kicked off from there. A couple months later, got got some help from a law firm to to get incorporated and. Charity status and um, early 2017 started off very humble
0: officially. Fantastic! What a journey! That's that's you've done a lot. <laughs> yes, uh,
4: you know one thing after the other. I never um, planned of of um, you know starting a indigenous charity to begin with. You know I was just wanted to learn how to run and grow businesses, but um, you yeah, know it's one of those things. If you don't do it, you know who will.
0: So, um, that's yeah, just one thing after the other, and now here I am. That's what happens. So tell me about your partnership with IBM. Oh, yeah. So
4: um, end of last year, set up for, I mean, uh, I guess a community partnership with IBM over next year, just to uh, work on a few things um, around tech with their support, and I run a few events, I guess, uh, for March and, uh, try and increase Indigenous entrepreneurship and get uh, upskill, hopefully a few more mob in the tech industry, and uh, which is booming. Obviously, you know, everything's uh, technology these days and there's a lot of jobs and, and opportunities there. So working with them to, yeah, try and uh, take things to the next level, I guess. And because Barry was very lean, you know, hopefully over the next year, um, we can persuade them uh, <laughs> to leverage off you know the resources a bit more to um to help us build the things we're working on, which would be really good
0: and how important is collaboration and partnering with other businesses in the startup space
4: I mean yeah partnerships you know, are very important collaboration,
0: consensus,
4: working together you know I think you know it's all in community um, so you know it's really. Important, I guess, from indigenous perspective, and and from a business perspective, you know, it's very important to those partnerships. Um, you know, the, the big corporations are always, even if they don't like each other, uh, you know, look, they're always looking to, you know, partner um, in some sense because of the benefits of that. So I think, yeah, any partnerships and collaborations um, are very important. It's, I mean, it doesn't. It's hard, though. It's uh, for indigenous uh, charity, I guess. Uh, perspective. It's uh, challenging to partner with some of the people in the startup and in tech industry because they do operate from a Western, you know, perspective. Yeah. So if you, if you can't, you know, offer any value to them, which is usually financial. You know, they. Yeah. Just, doesn't really go anywhere and um if there's nothing in it for them you know they're not really interested per se to help indigenous people um and you know create a better world you know they're not you know for themselves um so yeah there's there's a few challenges there just trying to get people to see i guess the, the benefits in supporting first nations people why they should do it um and you know why they shouldn't just expect to to make money out of it, and and just you know get back where they can.
0: So, how do you choose the right partners to work with? What what are what are some of the the green flags <laughs> instead of red flags <laughs> for for organisations?
4: Um, good question. So, um, I mean, for for the IBM, so we, I mean one of the guys reached out a couple of years ago and, you know, was looking at doing something. And I basically said, you know, it's a, I've been to big organization. Um, you know, if you don't come up with any, anything, you know, tangible, then it's, you know, it's not something we would be interested in. Um, not because, you know, we want to see money, but just because we want um, you know, genuine relationship. Like we don't want to, just put a big corporation logo attached to us um so say just uh, for branding purposes like you know if you guys are serious you know put your money and resources your mouth this that was a couple of years ago and basically ended there and you know over the last year kind of developing um you know this person i knew went to iba and he was really cool and we had a good relationship and uh, he, was, he started helping out uh, before he joined them and, um, you know, completely pro bono, a um, highly skilled tech guy helping out, which is really good. So, you know, I guess that got us in the the door kind of thing to, to build a relationship and, and put together a little community partnership for a certain term to hopefully build a relationship and take things to the next level from there. Um, but I guess a red flag would be you know tokenistic in nature, you know they um yeah, if it's yeah, they just want to partner just so they can you know get money over the government contracts or that kind of stuff like so they so, look good, <laughs> yeah, exactly, so they look good, it's not um yeah, it's, it's like a lot of these businesses, you know don't need money. Anyways, um, yeah. big corporates anyway. So it's like, yeah, it's just, so my recommendation for the big corporates would be, you know, don't go into the Indigenous space necessarily, uh, just, yeah, to make money uh, per se. I mean, you know, break even we can, but um, yeah, I mean, these big corporates have you know, made a lot of money out of uh, Indigenous uh, uh, disparity. And uh, I think, yeah, they should be, uh, you know, putting their money where their mouth is and helping out. I had another, you know, like a couple of days ago and a guy said, you know, some bank just came out and said, they're going to help indigenous people by, um, you know, in- increasing procurement for businesses. And I said, yeah, that's pretty cool. But social procurement's been around for a long, you know, uh, you know, a while now. Um, will it make a difference or not? You know, that's, I guess we'll see. But at the end of the day, these guys are banks. They yeah. have a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Why are they worrying about procurement? Why don't they just talk about money? Yeah. You know, if they're going to help Indigenous people. I mean, the number one problem for Indigenous entrepreneurs because of, you know, intergener- intergenerational wealth, uh, lack of intergenerational wealth and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's hard to get money from the banks. For Indigenous people, Um you know, I've heard, you know, some people perceive uh, banks as having... Because bankers generally, especially in higher positions, you know, they're not everyday Australians. So, you know, most of them come from uh, private... Um, not all of them, but most, you know, and that higher banking, you know, they're usually, you know, uh, non-Indigenous um, and go to private schools so that, You know, they can't really connect with Indigenous people. There may or may not be negative biases, which will affect, you know, lending and that kind of stuff. But it's just basically, you know, if you're a bank and you're talking about Indigenous procurement, (laughs) that's that's a bit tokenistic. Why don't they just put the money where the mouth is and say, no Indigenous population, 3%, it's not going to break the bank. We're going to, you know, go for 3% Indigenous business lending this year, you know, as a target, you know, that would be more um, tangible and have a bigger impact um, in my viewpoint than given some Indigenous businesses that may or may not actually (laughs) be Indigenous businesses.
0: You
4: know, they might be joint ventures, black cladding, that kind of stuff. Um, But, you know, if they say 3% of business loans, that's very tangible Um, in the banks, so that makes more sense uh, than just yeah, a few procurement contracts.
0: That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? That'd change everything if they take that perspective instead. Imagine that, 3% of business loans.
4: 100%. And if they said that, then, you know, I'd be happy to work with them. That would be a green tick in my box because it actually shows they're legit. Um, where if they just say, we want to, you know, give a few contracts to Indigenous businesses, that, that means nothing Um and that's, you know, a big, 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 uh, cross, big cross in uh, our books, um, you know. So, yeah, hopefully I answered the question. Um, oh, around, yeah. You know, and I've had a conversation, I won't mention who, <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> with uh, a bank before, and basically they said they didn't want to do anything um, too crazy or in the Indigenous space because they didn't want to alienate you know, their customer base. What? Basically, yeah, not non, non-Indigenous, you know, rich people. And if they do too much in the Indigenous space, then, you know, maybe they'll take... They didn't say it like this, so I'm rephrasing uh, what he said. But basically, you know, they didn't want to, um, yeah, offend or, I guess, uh, the, the wealthy customers. um Wow. In particular, um. But that's what I mean. If they're serious, just goes 3% Indigenous banking. It's not like 50% uh, Indigenous. It's not going to break their bank or their billion-dollar profit. Like, let's just get serious and and stop these tokenistic gestures.
0: For sure, for sure. That's pretty clear to me why the work that you're doing is important. But how would you describe to other people that aren't familiar with what you do as to why what you are doing is making a difference
4: yeah good question uh, so I guess tangibly with Indigenous business and that like we starting to when I just started out like you know I was just trying to do some cool stuff that would hopefully help out more and you know make a difference in community but now we have starting to get a bit more I guess professional and serious and starting to you know measure things and um impact uh with the businesses and, and our programs and events and how they you know make a difference um like you know one of the businesses we're working with last year um you know helped them by providing templates and advice around our cfo a chief financial officer um which they were you know needed because they identified their financial side wasn't wasn't that strong and you know we helped them um providing the tools and resources obviously we can't you know when we're working with entrepreneurs we can't do the work for them um you know whether just provide, provide support but they ended up getting a cfr for their business and um and also with our help you know we're able to secure some some free advertising through google AdWords. so they've got you know a couple of thousand each month to promote the business and generate leads and hopefully get more sales and and grow the business uh, through that the stuff we're doing around indigenous entrepreneurship um, I think is, is really important too, and the reason why is, yeah, because that joint ben- uh, joint ventures black clouding in these shell companies and uh, the dodgy stuff that that may be happening around indigenous uh, business procurement and stuff um I feel you know differentiating indigenous entrepreneurship which first Western entrepreneurship is important to so hopefully get more support for you know, the grassroots indigenous entrepreneurs, businesses um, that are working you know, just as hard to, to start, run and grow a business um, but don't necessarily get the same opportunities um, as, you know, some organisations um, that are operating from a, you know, Western perspective where it's uh, maybe just, you know, about them and and uh, the shareholders make the money so if we can support you know grassroots indigenous entrepreneurship which is community based instead of individual based which is a western approach i think that'll have a, a massive ripple effect in community you know if we're supporting is indigenous indigenous entrepreneurship um, entrepreneurs then they you know the more the bigger they become successful the more they're going to give back to community um, and yeah, the more benefit community and have a more positive uh, impact in the world through that ripple
0: effect Sure, so if, if people want to support the work that you're doing you know, get involved in some way, where, where can they go? What do they do?
4: Yeah, I guess you've, yeah, there's three avenues obviously, you know, mob um, you know, join up our programs and events you know we can if you're able you know, if you're able <laughs> our services are going all online and through tech so and unfortunately some of you know especially in the remote areas where Telstra and Optus and that may you know may not be serviced them then that well and they might have the internet which is a shame but yeah just join up we can support the cause like and share content um, and obviously, if there's genuine non-indigenous uh, organisations and people that want to help, you know, we've written articles about, you know, how people can help and and get on board to support indigenous
0: entrepreneurship. So
4: you know, just start there, and any helps, appreciate it.
0: Perfect. Thanks so much for your time today, Dean. It's been great having a chat with you. That was Dean Foley and this episode of Take It Black. Mundungu, thank you for joining me. And if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know. Give us a rating, share it with your friends, subscribe. And if there's anything STEM related you'd like to know more about, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at Ray Johnston. And I'll give you all the info in the next STEM episode. Until then, don't forget to take it black.